You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. David Guzik here, speaking to you from my home in Santa Barbara, California. Glad you could join me. It's just the afternoon here, just a couple minutes afternoon, Pacific time. Beautiful sunny day outside. I'm looking outside the window, and it's a nice day. A little breeze blowing through the air, and it's another great day here in California, even though we are in uh, several weeks into the response that not just California, not just the United States, but the world is making to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, protections given to sort of reduce the infection and, of course, they're the people getting sick by it, and, of course, put less of a strain on the healthcare system. So as things unfold, there's going to be unexpected things that happen along the way, but our expectation is very confidently in the Lord. So I'm happy to be with here on a, a Thursday afternoon. It's basically a idea where you write down your questions or your comments in the side chat. I'll answer the questions or respond to your comments the best I can. It's kind of getting to the place where I'm not able to respond to all the questions that come up within one of these 30 to 40 minute question and answer sessions I have. Uh, so we're thinking about using a moderator maybe in the future. Perhaps that's something we'll do, but we'll figure that out along the way. I do just want to say that if we've never met before, if you don't know anything about me or the work that I do, I'm not surprised. Uh, but I would just say this, that uh, most people who are familiar with my work are familiar with it because I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. Uh, it's available at my website, EnduringWord.com. It's also available at the wonderful Bible resource website, Blue Letter Bible. The guys at Blue Letter Bible do an amazing job, and they have collected a remarkable Bible resource with really amazing tools, especially original language in the ancient Greek and Hebrew tools, that is really making it uh, on par with a high-level uh, Bible uh, software program. It's available absolutely free on the internet, blb.org, Blue Letter Bible. Of course, the resources that I provide with my Bible commentary online at EnduringWord.com, that's also completely free. You just go there and you use it, and uh, it's a continually improving, hopefully, work. We're always looking to just make corrections and improve and rewrite and expand. Uh, this is my life's work that's out there, and uh, some people find the commentary of benefit. Obviously, there's no Bible commentary that resonates with every single person, uh, but for the people that find my work helpful to them, I'm very pleased about that. Okay, uh, let me get to our lead question for today. The lead question has to do with a uh, question that came in within the last week or so from Grateful Princess of God, and uh, this is the question that she asked. She asked, uh, today is Easter Sunday, and I was reading the last few chapters of Matthew. Suddenly, I had this questions about Judas Iscariot. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, King James, it talks about him repenting, and in verse 5, he hanged himself. We often talk about how there is no sin that Jesus' blood cannot wash away, 
no sin too great that God cannot forgive. I wonder what if Judas repented and didn't let the condemnation drive him to suicide? What if he asked God for forgiveness? Would it be forgiven? Hope that's not a stupid question. Well, no, I don't think it's a stupid question. I think it's a fascinating question. Was forgiveness possible for Judas? Now, we got to just say something at the at the beginning here when we're even considering such a question. It's that we are speaking purely hypothetically. We know how it worked out for Judas. We know that Judas was not forgiven, that Judas did not repent of his sin, that Judas committed suicide, adding sin to his sin, and that Judas is in hell. There aren't many people that we can confidently say that of in this world. We know they're in hell. We can confidently say that about Judas. So we know what happened with him. We know that ultimately that this was the outworking of the plan of God, not implying for a moment that God forced Judas to do what he wanted to do. But of course, Judas wanted to do it. It was the corruption of his own soul that led him to do it. And God simply allowed Judas to do it. In any way, we know that it all worked out according to God's plan. Judas did what he did. Jesus did what he did. Uh, the Romans did what they did. The religious leaders did what they did. And it all worked together for the ultimate good of God's plan and the advancement of his plan of the ages. Nevertheless, Judas was responsible for his sin. Now, one place we say this very confidently about Judas is, comes from John chapter 17, verse 12, that great priestly prayer of Jesus where he prays unto his father and he prays for his disciples and he prays for those who would be his disciples in generations to come. In that prayer, verse 12, Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. Now, perdition is an old-fashioned word in English. I kind of wonder what it would be in other uh, translations into other languages, what it might be in the German, in the Spanish, in the Italian, in the Russian, in the Arabic, whatever it might be. But in English, perdition is an old-fashioned word. Most people really don't know the meaning of it. But the basic idea behind perdition is destruction. And to call Judas, as Jesus did in John 17, verse 12, to call Judas the son of perdition meant that he was the man almost completely marked by and identified with destruction. If there was anybody that faced eternal torment, eternal destruction, if you will, it would be Judas himself. He embodied that sense of judgment. Now, we also know that in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus said that it would have been better if Judas had never been born. That is, it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. Uh, this is a very heavy thing for Jesus to say about anybody, uh, much less to say about Judas. So we know how it all worked out. But Grateful Princess of God brings out an interesting point. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, it says this, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, in other words, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, 
Um, I probably should have looked it up, but I, I assume that from what Grateful Princess of God says, that verse 3 of Matthew chapter 27 in the King James Version says that Judas repented. I don't think repented is a great translation of that word. Remorseful, as it is in the New King James Version, seems to be a better translation. The ancient Greek word is something like uh, metalethes, something like that. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. You can look it up. But it basically means to be sorry afterwards. In other words, that's not repentance. Repentance means to change, to do a 180-degree turn. You're walking south. You're going to change direction and walk north. That's repentance. That's metanoia. That's, that's to change your direction. This is a different ancient Greek word, which basically means to be sorry afterwards. Uh, A.T. Robertson, the great scholar, the Greek scholar, said this. He said, this verb, and he said it's the first aorist passive participle of uh, metalithis or metalithis. He said, it really means to be sorry afterwards. And he goes on to explain, the word does not have an inherently negative sense. It can be a sorrow that leads to repentance. But here's the difference. Just being sorry doesn't accomplish anything. It, it doesn't necessarily lead to repentance. With Peter, it did. There's a sense in which, uh, I get a sense, I'm just trying to make a small link between the two. Don't exaggerate this. There's a sense in which Peter and Judas sinned in similar ways. They both denied their master and rabbi. Now, of course, Judas did it in a much more horrific way. He actually betrayed Jesus. But Peter denied Jesus. Peter repented. Judas was sorry. Judas had remorse, sorrow over what he had done. Peter had repentance. And remember, there's a difference between the two. Someone can be sorry over their sin, sorry about the consequences, sorry that they did it, they wish they had never done it, but not displaying true repentance. Now, all that's kind of background. Grateful Princess of God asked the question, is it possible that Judas could have repented? Again, we're speaking purely in the hypothetical, and because we're speaking in the hypothetical, I would insist to you that there's no technically right or wrong answer unless we know we're going contrary to the scriptures. I would say it would have been possible, theoretically speaking, for Judas to have been forgiven. I mean, the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as it's described in the New Testament, that's basically the sin that won't come to Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness. The job, the role of the Holy Spirit in regards to Jesus Christ is to testify of him, to tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and to reject who Jesus is, to reject what he has done to provide for the forgiveness of sins. That, that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to do it in a settled and hardened way. By the way, if anybody is worried that they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, um, you can correct that right here, right now. You can repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and it will be evidence that you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That, that's simply that simple. You can just do it that way. You, 
the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the settled, ongoing, permanent rejection of what the Holy Spirit says about who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Now, again, I think Judas, theoretically speaking, we know it didn't work out this way. And so in that sense, it couldn't have worked out this way. But theoretically speaking, Judas could have repented. Judas could have been restored. The power of Jesus is able to restore people from all kinds of sin, even the sin of denying and betraying Jesus. Judas did not perish. He was not the son of perdition because he was beyond the ability of Jesus to rescue. He did it because he would not receive the rescue that Jesus offered unto him. Uh, So I think that Judas could have repented. Let's remember that at the Last Supper, Jesus showed Judas that special mark of his love and his care. He gave him that piece of bread dipped in kind of the fatty juices that was especially flavorful and a sign of honor. Theoretically, Judas, either at that moment or remembering that moment, could have said, this savior, this master of mine, this rabbi of mine, this man that I've sat under for the last three years, he loves me so much. I need to repent. I need to tell him how sorry I am. I I need to to take this back. Um, Theoretically, I think it could have happened. Now, of course, we just want to say again, it didn't happen. So there's a sense in which it's, you know, just speculation to think about it. But sometimes this kind of speculation can be fun as long as we don't take it too seriously. So thank you for the question. And let me get on to some of the comments and questions now in our side chat. We'll get through as many of these as we can. Uh, Luis says, how did Judas die? To my understanding, the Bible says two different theories. Would you clarify that? Okay, well, it is true. And again, maybe if I was better prepared, I'd have the exact passages in front of us. I know we're talking, I think about Matthew and Acts uh, but I don't have it right in front of me. Look, the, the two accounts can be reconciled by just simply understanding that Judas attempted to hang himself, and most likely the rope broke, or the limb that he was on, uh, the tree that the rope was hanging from broke, and he fell down and split head open in the field where he tried to hang himself. Um, that's the most logical, plain, simple explanation that the two accounts are not contradictory. Now, look, if someone is determined to find a contradiction in something, they can. Um, They can just say, well, I don't accept your reconciliation. I I don't accept the way that those two things can, can both be true, just looking at it from different angles. If someone just says, well, I don't accept it, well, what are you going to do? They just don't accept it. But it doesn't mean that the reconciliation is not valid, is not true, just because somebody says, I don't buy it. So I think that the two accounts can be reconciled. And without great difficulty, Judas came and hung himself, and either the rope broke or that which the rope was tied to, some kind of tree, the limb broke, and he split open in a field. And if somebody wants to get technical and say, what was actually the cause of death, the strangulation or the splitting open, who knows exactly why, but these were the circumstances of his death. 
So I hope that helps you, Louise. That's a good question. It's a question that people often raise. Okay, continuing on. Uh, Paul says, hello, first live chat. Well, welcome, Paul. Glad you could join us. I'm glad that we could do this. Um, again, I love God's word. I love God. I love God's people. And so whenever we can get together in the presence of the Lord, talking about his word, together with God's people, even if it's online, uh, what a wonderful thing that is. So uh, I'm glad you could join us for the live chat. Margie says, Enduring Word is awesome, and it's my pleasure to be a small monthly donor. Well, thank you, Margie. Look, we, we do have people who support the work. Um, what it takes to support uh, the very small staff that we have for Enduring Word, what it takes to support the work, and especially what it takes to support our translation work. I, I was just looking over our um, balance sheet for this year, and by a very significant margin, we have spent more on the work of translating the Bible commentary than on anything else this year. Um, just because we, even though this is a difficult time, you know, for people making donations and all that, just I'm speaking broadly in, in the world of nonprofits and churches and ministries in general, we're not slowing down in the translation work that God's given us to do. And so we're putting a lot of resources into the Arabic translation and into the Chinese translation. And let me just say this, we have also invested money this year and will continue to do so in getting my Bible commentary translated into Farsi. We've had it now, uh, the first portion of the script of the, my commentary translated into Farsi, that's the Gospel of Luke. And we hope to do more. And I think this is thrilling. This is exciting. Because as difficult as it might be to find good Bible resources in English, they're out there. In other languages, not so easy. So thank you, Margie, for supporting the work. Um, I Just God bless you for doing that. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Paul says he's listening from Ireland. That's great. Uh, Louise says, Enduring Word is amazing. It's helped me so much to understand the Word of God. Uh, praise the Lord. Thank you, Louise. I'm happy to hear it. Paul says, thank you so much for your ministry, David. It's a blessing here in Duluth. Pastor Paul, thank you so much. It's great to see you on the live stream, on the chat. I'm so pleased that you could join us. God bless you and your work for the Lord, Pastor Paul. I so appreciate it. Luciana says, hi, Pastor David. Why do some people believe the theory that the earth is flat? Does the Bible say something about it or against it? Isn't it clear that the earth isn't flat? Thank you. Luciana, there, there's all sorts of ideas that people have that, um, you know, some of them may or may not have validity when we take a look at them in regard to science or when we look in regard to the Bible. Now, many uh, months ago, maybe years ago, because we've been doing this uh, live uh, question answer maybe for almost two years now. And one of the early question and answer sessions that we had, somebody asked about the flat earth and about a specific passage of scripture, I think in Isaiah, whether or not it really argued for a flat earth. And I, I took a look at the passage and I did some digging and I just had to say, no, it did not. Um, fundamentally, the Bible does not argue for a flat earth. If somebody wants to try to make the case scientifically, um, let them go at it. Uh, I think you really got an uphill battle there, but let them go at it. I, I have to say, the thing about the flat earth argument that has sort of mystified me 
is if it's true that the earth is flat and there's been an unbelievable conspiracy to hide that fact and to promote the idea of a sphere, spherical earth, a round earth, um, I'm having trouble coming up with the real motive. Why? Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure that there are people out there who propose motives, but I, I haven't heard anybody really explain a motive to me that would be so compelling that it would lead to such a grand conspiracy. I, I guess that's kind of my view on it. Um, so anyway, I, I don't really see. Let me just say, Luciana, the Bible nowhere argues for a flat earth. Um, it doesn't demand it from the pages of the scriptures. All right, Jim says, I know how protective you are of your pulpit when you were senior pastor. In that vein, should we protect our worship songs we choose, like Elevation or Bethel Music? Okay, Jim, I, I think you're you're putting your finger on a very important question. And, and maybe I'll extend, give an extended answer to this at some time. Um, let me just say that I do think that pastors and leaders of churches, whether it's elders or whatever the specific form of church government is, worship leaders, pastors, elders, whatever the leadership of a local congregation is, they should be concerned about the songs that are sung, and they should not thoughtlessly receive songs. Just say, well, we're going to sing it because it's popular. Popularity is not reason enough to sing a worship song. It does need to be solid, uh, biblically speaking, um, and it needs to reflect God's truth. Now, here's the big question. Well, let me just let me back up a little bit. So I, I think it is legitimate to analyze worship songs in light of the scriptures in light of basic theology, and say, theologically speaking, are we fine singing this song? Is this good? It's not enough that it's a catchy tune, that it's popular. It's not enough that people like to sing it. It's valid to ask, is this theologically true? Now, let me say, I do think that it's possible to be too picky when it comes to analyzing a song theologically. There has to be at least some latitude given for poetic expression. Now, I understand some people may want to give a tiny bit of latitude for poetic expression. There's other people who might want to give a lot of latitude for poetic expression. Understood. And I think that that's something that Christians can agree to disagree on. Um, but I, I do think that there has to be a little bit of latitude given for uh, poetic expression. We, we are expecting our songs to be theologically true. We don't necessarily need them to be theologically sophisticated. It would be great if they were, but they don't have to be. Okay, so putting that aside, here's where I think there's room for Christians to agree to disagree. If you take a look at a song and you say, okay, this song is okay. It's not just catchy. It's not just something that people like to sing, but, but the song is okay. But it comes from a source 
that has written some other songs that aren't okay, or a source that has aspects of their theology or their practice that I disagree with. Do aspects of the source disqualify a song, or should you just judge the song for what it is in itself and not be so concerned about the source? Well, um, let me just say that I myself, I am more on the side where I will judge the song for what it is in itself and not be so concerned about the source. Uh, please, I'm not saying that I have no concern for the source, but it's not as important to me. But if I have a fellow pastor or leader or worship leader in a church who says, no, I'm very concerned about the source. I'm not going to sing this song because of where it came from. The song itself might be okay, but it came from a questionable place. We're not going to sing it. Let me just say, I completely respect the um, freedom and the responsibility of that leader in that church, that brother in that church, to make that call, and I wouldn't seek to judge it at all. I, I just think that these are areas where, at the individual congregational level, that um, leaders, pastors, worship leaders, elder boards, whatever, they need to come to agreement and understand it, what God wants them to do. And we should be slow to judge our brothers and sisters when it comes to that. Now, when I say judge, I don't mind somebody giving a warning. Please, we need to have the ability as brothers and sisters in Christ to exhort one another and say, David, you're, you're doing this, but I think it's wrong. I just want to tell you that I think, hey, praise the Lord. G give that warning. We can warn and we can uh, explain ourselves without having to judge our brothers and sisters and just say, listen, I'm going to give them my perspective. This is why I think. And then I'm going to leave it between them and the Lord. So, yes, absolutely. We should be concerned about the, the theological um, content of our song. Songs. As for judging songs as to where they come from, I think to some degree that has to be left up to individual congregations and the leaders of individual congregations. Um, the great example I like to give about this, because I've talked about this a time or two before, is the example of um, uh, Horatio Spatford. Uh, who wrote the great song, how come it's not coming to my mind, what the great song Horatio um, Spatford's song is, It Is Well With My Soul. What a great song. You know, and, and the circumstances around the song, he lost his wife, he lost his children, he lost them there on this ship. He got news of it. He wrote this great song, It Is Well With My Soul. It's an amazing song. It, it's correct theologically. It's a beautiful, it's a soul stirring song. What a great song. It is well with my soul. Listen, I'm here to tell you Horatio Spatford was a kook. He was a crook. And he and his wife, I said his wife died in the thing. She didn't die because she went on. Uh, but anyway, his children died. Horatio Spatford was a kook a crook, and he and his wife led something of a cult in the American colony there in Jerusalem. There, I just said it. You can look it up for yourself. 
look at the book American Priestess, uh, where it speaks about that. That's the story of Horatio Spatford. Nevertheless, it's a good song. So I feel okay singing this song, even though a kook, a crook, and a man who started something of a cult, or at least was involved in it, in Jerusalem, um, because I'm willing to judge the song for itself. Now, if somebody disagrees and says, no, we will not sing that song in our church because of her, who Horatio Spafford was, then again, I'm not going to disagree with them, or excuse, I'm not going to condemn them, but I, I don't feel that I necessarily have to agree with them. Okay. Um, hope that answers that, Jim. That's a long answer to a question. Alex says, is there anything that you personally do in order to understand the extent of that eternal torment, that is to find anything that we can understand the extent at which we are saved. Alex, let me explain this. One way that I try to understand the extent of eternal torment is to understand the fact that we are sinful, corrupt, broken, imperfect human beings. That's who we are. Being imperfect, it is impossible for us to make a perfect payment for our sin before God. And one of the reasons why I believe, and it's an unpleasant doctrine, I'll, I'll say those words, one of the reasons I believe that hell is eternal is not only because the Bible says it, which it does, but I believe that it's eternal because justice in this sense demands it because those in hell can never offer a complete payment for their sins. And so um, justice before God is never satisfied. Whereas for the believer, for the one who puts their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, their sins are perfectly paid for. Because Jesus, different from us, different from me, different than you, Jesus could offer a perfect payment for sins. So that, that's one way that I kind of understand and make sense of something that is, as I said, admittedly an unpleasant doctrine. Um, but it's true, I believe. Levy says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen to that. Levy, I skipped over here. Let me come back here. Cynthia says, hi, I have a question. When someone commits a sin, should I pray for justice or forgiveness? Uh, Cynthia, that's great, isn't it? I mean, basically, here's how it usually works, at least practically speaking. When I commit a sin, I pray for forgiveness. When somebody else commits a sin, I pray that God would give them justice. And again, I'm not saying that that's right, but practically speaking, that's often how it works out. Cynthia, I believe we can pray for both. We can pray for God to do his just work, and we can pray for God to extend forgiveness in and through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I said it connects with the answer I just gave to Alex. In Jesus, divine justice is satisfied. And so there's nothing wrong with us as Christians for longing for the satisfaction of justice. We just have to understand that sometimes the way God satisfies justice is to do it in 
the payment that Jesus has offered. We need to be filled with forgiveness towards people. We need to realize that we are forgiven sinners. Therefore, God wants us to forgive others. And even though we cannot be necessarily reconciled to people with a true restoration of relationship until there's some sort of repentance and restoration, um, we can offer forgiveness and the gift of forgiveness to others. So, Cynthia, I think we can pray for both. I think we can pray for God to do his just and proper work. Um, but there are many things in prayer that we have to simply end up just leaving before God. Lord, I lay this at your throne, and I leave it before you. Um, that is a good and appropriate thing for us to do. Okay, let me continue on with questions here. Caroline says, Hi, Pastor David. If we pray for God to stop the coronavirus, are we violating his will? If not, shall we all set a date to fast and pray for three days and all ask Christians we know to join us? Okay, Caroline, there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I'm going to pray that you do this and I leave it in your hands. We can't demand that God end the coronavirus pandemic around the earth. The reason why is that we don't have a scriptural promise that gives us the basis for such a, a uh, uh, bold approach before God. No, it's not our place to command God to do such things. We can pray when we have a promise from God in confidence of what his will is, but that's still different than commanding God. Um, so what we can do is we can ask God to do something and then leave it in his hands. But when we don't have a um, clear promise from God's word for us that he will do something, um, we pray and simply leave the matter with him. Let me kind of explain to you. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can, for ourselves, and we can tell other people to do this, you can confidently go to God and say, if you confess your sin to him, and if you come to him in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ, in light of who Jesus is and what he did for us, when you come to God in this way, you can absolutely be confident that God has forgiven your sin because he has promised to do so in 1 John 1, 9. Where we have a clear promise, we can pray with that kind of boldness and confidence. And I think our, our boldness, our confidence honors God in those situations. Where we don't have such a clear promise, it's okay for us to pray and say, Lord, we pray that you would stop this. We pray that you would do this. But then in faith, we leave the matter before God and trust that the judge of all the earth will do right. So I hope that's an answer for you, Carolyn. Really, it's based on what the promises of God are. All right. Um, Deb says, are there any Catholic churches that teach that people have to do nothing else besides believe in Jesus as Savior in order to be saved? Like his works for salvation, a mark of Catholicism. Thank you. Okay, Deb, let me just say, I'm not an expert on Roman Catholic theology, but let me give you my understanding. Uh, I would be surprised if there are many or any Roman Catholics 
who teach this that it's by faith alone without works. Now, let me just say, now, let, let me back up. Let me back up. There. Let me push a restart on my answer here. I'll state it again like this. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is basically amounting to, it is not by faith alone that we are saved, but it is by faith plus works. Now, I believe that's an unbiblical teaching. That's the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, whether or not individual Roman Catholics teach that and believe that, who can say? There's a lot of priests in the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe there are some who don't teach what the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches. I mean, they should. They've taken vows that they should. But we just know that there's a lot of Roman Catholic priests and people in the Roman Catholic Church who don't believe what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. So there's a sense in which there's two ways that questions like this have to be addressed. It's fair to address this is what the Roman Catholic Church actually officially teaches. That's fair to do. But it's also fair to say, what is it that individual, or at least some individual Roman Catholics believe? So it's fine to look at the official doctrines of the church, but one also has to look at what individuals may believe. And that's how we do. So I would say, um, biblically speaking, uh, there's certainly many better expressions of the true gospel and of, of what it is than the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, no doubt whatsoever. Um, Seth says, hi, Pastor David, how do you reconcile Satan's control over Judas and God's sovereign will? Does God allow Satan to control this world? Seth, I would just answer that question that in some measure, God allows Satan to control the earth. And I would just say this, that um, the Bible itself calls Satan the God of this world, the God of this present age. Now, it doesn't refer to that in an ultimate sense. No, never in an ultimate sense, but in a lesser sense. God has given humanity what it wants, and that's to be under the dominion of Satan, not the ultimate dominion. God is ultimately in control of everything and is moving things towards the conclusion, the destiny that God has arranged. But in a lesser sense, a smaller sense, Satan is the God of this world, the God of this present age. It's like this, that God has Satan on a leash. Again, we understand I'm using a figure of speech here. But he has latitude on that leash, but he doesn't have ultimate freedom. Do, do you remember what uh, Jesus said regarding Peter? He said, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. The thought basically there is, is that Satan wanted to do much worse to Peter than what Peter experienced. Jesus wouldn't allow it. So God sets limits to what Satan and his agents can do in this world. 
but he gives them some latitude within those limits. That's the best way I could express it. And no, Satan did not force Judas to do what he did, but surely Satan was behind it, prompting it. Judas himself opened the door for that satanic influence upon him to do what he did. I hope that's helpful for you, Seth, in answering that question. Karina says, blessings and greetings from Mexico. God bless you, Karina. I am so happy that my Bible commentary in Spanish is being proofread. We have a team of Spanish-speaking proofreaders who are going through the commentary and just making it better and improving it. And uh, I just got back 1 Corinthians from a proofreader that we have in Cuba. And I'm very excited about seeing the work progress along the way. So happy to, that we have viewers from uh, Mexico. All right, I'm going to deal with just another question or two. Uh, Agnes says, hi, Pastor David. A pastor just recently died from the coronavirus after continuing to hold church services in the church. Do you think that this is a form of tempting God for disobeying the government? Well, Agnes, again... I, not knowing the entire situation, I'm speaking at it from a distance, so maybe someone going to say is incorrect. But just as you represent the situation to me here, I would say that the pastor was definitely tempting God. A acting, now, again, so I don't know what the pastor was saying. Maybe the pastor was saying, uh, we need to hold church services. This will honor God. And if we honor God by holding church services, God won't allow any of us to get sick. Maybe that's what he was saying. If that's what he was saying, then he was tempting God by claiming uh, that none of them would get sick, and they did. M maybe the pastor came at it from a different approach. Maybe he said, it's so important for us to have church services that we're going to have them, and it doesn't matter if we die. Uh, because it's more important for us to have church services. Okay, I would disagree with the pastor in this particular application. It's a complicated issue, but in that particular application. But in that, I wouldn't say he was tempting God. He understood that he might die for this, and he did. I think he was misguided, but he wasn't guilty of the sin of tempting God. So I, we would have to know more about the pastor and his specific rationale, the specific reasons why he did what he did, but it is sort of a fascinating question. And uh, Mariti from uh, Geldenhuis says, watching from Cape Town, South Africa, thank you for all your teachings. Love everyone. Hey, God bless you. I love the city of Cape Town. Have some beloved brothers and sisters there. I'm glad to know that we have viewers, listeners from Cape Town. All right, I'm looking over the chat. Uh, it's more than I can get to in this particular session. I've been doing other recording already today. My voice is starting to get tired and give out a little bit. I can't afford for that to happen because I have a lot of taping to do uh, now and in the coming days. One of the goals I have for this year is to go through the entire book of Psalms, uh, teaching through it and putting it here on the YouTube channel. And I'm making my way through it today. I just did Psalm 66. And hopefully we're going to get more and more through the book of Psalms. So that kind of is an expenditure upon my voice. But I'm so glad that you could join me today. So glad that we could come together for one of these Thursday afternoon question and answers. I'm going to be back on Monday uh, during the time when people are at home much more. 
Until things open up, we're going to be doing this two days a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. So glad that you could join me. Please pray for the ministry of my Bible commentary, of other ways that it reaches out. God seems to have his hand of blessing upon it, which I'm very grateful for. But one of the reasons I know God is blessing, blessing the website, blessing the YouTube channel, blessing the translation work, blessing it on many different fronts. One of the reasons I believe God is blessing it is because people like you are praying for it. So please, I so value your prayers and I, I appreciate them so much. God bless you. Thank you for joining me on today's question and answer video. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.